so we have set off with our pack of 10 demons, our parody of a Roman troop squadron. Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are walking slowly through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the fifth of the evil pouches that make up the giant landscape of fraud in the eighth circle of hell. We are officially in Inferno, Canto 22, lines 13 through 39. We have watched a squadron of demons all amass, 10 of them in fact, and then set off with a most vulgar trumpet call. Other than that, we're walking along the edge of the ditch that holds the political grifters, the people who were on the take so let's get to it. Lines 13 to 39 of Canto 22 of Inferno. We walked along with these 10 demons. Wow, what a ferocious company. But in the church with saints, in the bar with boozers, my attention was completely on the pitch to see every particular about this pouch and the people burning inside of it. As dolphins, when they make signals to the mariners with the arch of their spines so that those guys take precautions for saving their ships, in the same way, once in a while, to lessen his pain, one of the sinners would show his back and hide it again in a flash. And as at the water's edge in a ditch, frogs stand there with just their snouts sticking out, keeping their feet and their big bulk submerged, so the sinners position themselves on both sides. But as Curly Beard got near, they sank back under the boil. I saw, and even now my heart still skips a beat, one linger a bit, just as you might see one frog hesitate while the others leap away and mange dog who was closest to him hooked him by his tarred hair and hauled him on shore he looked like an otter to me i already knew all their names because i jotted them down as they were selected and then when they called out to each other The passage is rather simple in what happens inside of it, but we want to make much of the passage itself. And I'm going to warn you before we get going here that while the uh, plot, as it were, of this passage is rather easy to follow, here they are walking along, looking down in the ditch, uh, you know, one sinner kind of hangs back, one of the bear editors, and Mange Dog, one of the ten demons, grabs him, hooks him by his tarred hair, and hauls him up onto the shore. This is all before a great deal of violence that will happen in the next episode of the podcast. But just in this episode, the plot is rather simple. There's a couple things in here that we want to talk about. But really what we're going to do is we're going to get extraordinarily meta. In order to do that, let's just do it. There's a big question about the sequences with the Barretters, this long stretch of landscape that goes all the way from Canto 21 through 22 and out into 23. This long bit with the demons is, how do we take it? And what I'm going to do in this portion of this episode of the podcast is I'm going to 
offer you some various ways you can take this long episode with the demons and the barriters. I'm not going to necessarily reach any conclusions, but you'll see which one I favor because it brings up a bigger question. So let's talk about how to read this long sequence with the barriters. And by read, I mean interpret in the fancy literary terminology. How do we interpret this? I mean, there's several ways you can do it. A lot of the commentators look at this long stretch in the fifth of the evil pouches as a comic interlude in the otherwise bleak landscape of hell. Go all the way back up to Francesca with the lustful, come all the way down through the gluttons, through the angry, through dis, through the heretics and Farinata, all the way down the slope past the violent, the murderers, and the suicides, poor old Pierre de Lavagna turned into a tree, on down to the blasphemous Capaneus stretched on the sands, the homosexuals, the usurers, on over the cliff and down to the pouches themselves with all different kinds of fraudsters amongst them. And in all of that bleak landscape, this is a comic interlude. To call it a comic interlude is to notice that it falls as the fifth of ten evil pouches. And so here, Dante's giving us a little bit of levity. It's like those weird scenes that are kind of hard to take in Hamlet or Othello, those weird scenes of low comedy that break out occasionally in Shakespeare's tragedies. They're hard for the modern world to take because the modern world is no good at seeing the dissonance between the comic scenes in Hamlet and the larger tragedy that's going all around it. Maybe. That's certainly the way many people see it. But while this is funny, I suppose, it's bodily vulgar. The vulgarity all lies down in the body. And maybe for us post-Victorians, that's kind of funny in a crass adolescent way. And I was certainly presenting it as that in the last episode of this podcast. Is the episode really funny? Is it really funny to think about people in boiling pitch who are in a great deal of pain and who are being watched over by demons who are ready to absolutely flay them alive, tear them apart? Is that really funny? I understand the wild dissonance of comic bits in tragic sequences, but one could not call Inferno tragic. One could call it perhaps melancholy, but not truly tragic. And two, the dissonance between the comic and the bleakness of hell is a little bit mitigated here by the sheer bleakness of this pouch. I have a problem reading the text solely this way, but it is, I want to tell you, probably the dominant way over the history of Inferno that this whole pouch is read as the comic interlude. How else can we read it? We can read it as a folklore genre. In fact, the demons here come right out of folkloric traditions, and we can read this as the big folklore demon section of Inferno. Critics who want to read this this way, the folklore section of Inferno, see Inferno and we haven't talked much about this, but they see Inferno as an encyclopedia of genres. 
all throughout Inferno, according to some critics, Dante is trying to figure out the right way to write comedy. And one of the ways that he does this task of figuring it out is by trying out various genres. This sounds a little too programmatic to be true, but let's just let it be for the second and say that Inferno is an encyclopedia of genres. We've had romance with Francesca. We've had epic moments. We've had tragic moments, as in Pierre de la Vagne, to have already brought him up. We have high-style moments. We have low-style as here. So Dante's got all kinds of styles going on. In his past, Dante carried on a contest of rather sexual lyrics with another poet, Forese Donati. We're going to have to save that more for Purgatorio, but he did carry on a kind of contest of who could write the sexiest lyric, uh, and maybe the part of the low style here is part of that. It's kind of um, taking the bodily imagery of those lyrics farther. Some people see that. You should know that some people see this section with the barriters as a fabio. If you remember your Chaucer, the Miller's Tale, the Reeves Tale, there are all kinds of fablio running around in the Canterbury Tales. This is particularly advanced by Professor Kevin Brownlee at UPenn. Uh, fablio is a, well, in workman's terms, it's a French dirty joke. It's a it's a body ribald tale out of a French tradition, and it includes certain things like Violence is central to the action of a fablio. And if you remember the Miller's Tale or know it from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, you know that violence is intrinsic to that tale, including the poker in the butt and all kinds of problems that go on violently inside the Miller's Tale. The people in fablio are often given animalistic traits. And you can see that working here in the line. He looked like an otter to me. And Perhaps the biggest component of a fablio is that the physically dominant characters, those characters who are strong or physically dominating in some way, are eventually beaten by weaker, clever characters. Again, if you know the Miller's Tale, you know that that's kind of the bed trick that goes on inside the Miller's Tale in Chaucer. And we could say that that's going to happen here because the stronger characters, the demons, are in the end going to be defeated. But we kind of have to wait a couple passages to get to that. Brownlee argues that this is a fablio, which is out of the folklore tradition. So that's kind of a subset of our folklore genre idea. So you can see this long episode with the Barretters, with the people on political grift, as a comic interlude in the otherwise bleak landscape of hell. You can see it as one more genre that Inferno is trying out, whether Dante is consciously trying him out or whether he is writing Inferno as an encyclopedia of genres that can be done in the low vernacular style. We can't really come down where we think that is, at least I can't because I don't think you can actually decide that. But you can read Inferno certainly as an encyclopedia of various literary genres or forms. Or there's a third way we can read this entire sequence, long sequence with the Barretters. Let's go back. We're in the central pit of the Malabolgia, the fifth of them. So we're right kind of at the center of the Malabolgia. There are 10 of them. Dante here in the central pit of the Malabolgia is testing the limits of his own writing. Here in the pit of the sin, 
that he was accused of and that sent him into exile here in this pit, Dante the poet works to make his fiction truthful. Here is the moment that the crux hits us of how to make fiction truthful. The fraud of his journey and Let's just say Dante's journey is a fraud. Of course, he did not walk across the known universe. And of course, when Garion, the beast of fraud, appears, that is the moment in which Dante A names his comedy and swears that he really actually saw this with his own eyes, which no one ever believes. And it's interesting that when we hit this pit of the barriters, Dante again names his work comedy. Remember back to the opening of the 21st Canto before we got to the Venetian pitch arsenale? He says that he and Virgil walked along talking of things that do not concern his comedy, thereby naming it and calling our attention to the work as a work as a piece of literature. And the fraud of Dante's journey is here highlighted in the pouch that holds part of the historical truth of his exile, his real journey. So the fraudulent journey, if I can be that bold, the fraudulent journey of walking across the known universe, unless you really believe Dante went down and that hell really has rings and that Dante really saw these figures, this fraudulent journey is here in the pouch that is part of his real journey, the exile from Florence over the crime of baratry. And thus, we see here the problem of the truth claims of this journey highlighted in the face of fraud. I realize we're getting very high level, but let's just do it. Let's get more so into a larger question. The larger question is how does the canto establish verisimilitude? Let me just define that word in case you're not quite sure of literary studies. It's okay. Verisimilitude is the appearance, the appearance of being real or true, not real or truth itself, making something appear to be real or true, essentially the definition of verisimilitude. And how do we do it here? How do we establish the verisimilitude of the, of the sequences here with the Baraders? One, we use natural world similes. They're throughout here. Dolphins, frogs, otters. So we get the first simile in this passage as dolphins when they make signals to the mariners with the arch of their spines so that those guys can take precautions for saving their ships. That's right in the passage itself. Isidore of Seville in the etymologies at 12.6.11 at right that moment in 12.6.11 of the etymologies claims that dolphins sailed up the ships and signaled them that storms were approaching and this became a commonplace in Dante's day. I don't know if Dante knew it from the etymologies or he knew it more from the commonplace notion it had taken up in all kinds of poetic references. But nonetheless, dolphins were seen to signal meritors of an approaching storm. And believe me, there is an approaching storm here. Also, 
frogs, as at the water's edge in a ditch. The passage says frogs stand there with just their snouts sticking out, keeping their feet and their big bulk submerged. Again, a natural world bestial imagery. We can go back to Fablio here. Natural world bestial imagery, but it establishes the verisimilitude of this incredibly imagined and, dare I say, fraudulent environment. And also, at the end, when Mange Dog grabs this guy, hooks him by his tarred hair, and hauls him out, right? Hauls him out of the pitch ditch because he hesitates slightly. The passage says he looked like an otter to me. What does that mean? Probably that the way otters look when they come out of the water, that their pelts are slicked down. So this guy, his hair is full of the pitch from the ditch. <laughs> and so he looks a bit like an otter. Interesting that these natural world similes help us establish this incredibly imagined, beautifully imagined, but nonetheless imagined landscape as real. The reality claims, just think about this a minute and let it kind of sit in your head. The reality claims of the journey are founded here on a set of similes, of literary devices that compare this imagined world to the natural world, but just back up and hold right there and say, the reality claim is bolstered by a literary device, a simile, and you can start to see the problems. Also, how else do you establish verisimilitude or the appearance of being real or true? With folksy colloquialisms, and we've seen it right in this passage. We walked along, it starts with those teen, 10 demons, wow, such a ferocious kind of a company, and then comes this phrase, but in the church with saints, in the bar with boozers, which most commentators see as a colloquialism of the time, you know, like um, better late than never or a stitch in time saves nine. In other words, when you're in church, you're with one set of people. When you're in a bar, you're with another set of people. So moderate your expectations to the people you're around in the church with saints, in the bar with boozers. This kind of folksy colloquial saying helps put our questions of whether this is real or not at rest. And Throughout the Baroder sequence, Dante, the poet, is offering us personal details. We saw Dante at Caprona at the battle in 1289. And most critics earlier, go back a couple episodes of this podcast, you'll see that. And in just the last uh, episode of this podcast, we saw the knights amassing and raiding parties, Verrezzo and all that. Most commentators think that's a reference to Dante's involvement in the Battle of Campaldino in 1289. So Dante the poet is advancing his own history. Now, perhaps he's advancing it to say, hey, I'm not guilty of Baratry. I'm a really good Florentine who fought the good fight for the Florentines. Maybe. But at the same time, those personal details are helping establish the verisimilitude of this wildly imagined landscape. And our final point here of how to establish verisimilitude is just admit it. Admit that you're writing 
end. How does the passage end? I already knew all their names because I jotted them down as they were selected and when they were called out to each other. So how did I know all these demons' names? Oh, I noted it down when Evil Tail called them out and when they were talking to each other. So I've got my little notebook. Remember, we've learned that Dante's taking notes that a lady... Beatrice, will ultimately have to gloss. So he's got his little notebook. He's jotting it all down. He's making reference to the writing process in the middle of this. Furthermore, and this is what's so intriguing, in the sequence of the Baraders, the poet is never very far away from the pilgrim. Notice even in this passage, the sinners position themselves like frogs. As Curly Beard gets near them, they sink back under the boil. But I saw and then this phrase, even now, my heart still skips a beat. That's the poet, even now. So suddenly we're at his desk. He's got his quill in his hand. He's got his parchment in front of him. He's starting to write. Even now, my heart still skips a beat. And those references to the battle at Caprona and the battle at Campaldino, those are references from the poet. The poet is never far away from these sequences with the barriters and in this ditch with all of these demons, this highly imagined landscape. Here in the central pits of fraud, we discover the ways that you can turn your fiction into truth. And thus, you can swear on your own work comedy that you really did see the beast of fraud. Do you see how meta level this is getting? Level on top of level. How, oh, what do I want to say? How falsified and truthified it's getting at the same moment. I know there's no such word in English as truthified, but you know what I mean? How it is advancing the fiction of the moment while it is advancing the truth claim, or let me put it another way, it's advancing the literariness of the scene while it's in advancing its historicity, or let me put it another way, it's telling you it's fake while it's telling you it's true, or it's telling you it's made up while it's telling you it's real. That should kind of knock your socks off, because it does mine, so I hope it does yours. <laughs> Just knock your socks off. And you should realize that you're dealing here with passages that are working to make what is implausible plausible, what is unbelievable believable, and what is written true. What's written? We're about to descend into one of the most violent passages in Inferno. There are a couple of them ahead of us that are of equal weight, but we're about to descend to some really graphic stuff. So come back. We got to see what these demons do to this poor guy they've hauled out by the hair who looks like a wet otter coming out of the water. We got to find out what they do to him and what they do to him isn't very good subscribe to the podcast please rate it if you can please give it a comment that would be brilliant connect with me on twitter under my own name at mark scarborough that seems at this point to be how most people find me if you want to see my translation here of the english it's on my website markscarborough.com otherwise come back because these demons are just getting started with this poor fool that they have pulled out of the boiling pitch. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. See you next time.